All right, guys. So we are in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. And I think as a church, as we listen to the word of God from last week, we were left in this place of tension this week. Let me remind you of what I'm talking about. So in Matthew chapter 25, verses 45 and 46, Jesus left us off last week this way. He will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So as we've wrestled through this idea that we will be judged on what we do for the poor and the marginalized at the end of the age, we might ask this question. Does my salvation rest on my obedience? In other words, does God work like this? If I obey him, then I'll be saved. Or does our salvation look like this? I'm saved, therefore I obey him. And do you know that the order that you place that in, in your mind, makes all the difference in the world? Because if you think that your salvation rests on your obedience, you have every other religion in the world. But if you believe that your salvation rests on the finished work of Jesus and that obedience is a loving response to that, then you have Christianity. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is this beautiful truth that Jesus is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. This is why I love to teach the Bible verse by verse, guys. Because what happens is, sometimes we are rebuked by Jesus, as we were last week. And sometimes we are soothed by Jesus, as we will be this week. So let's look at three reasons that Jesus' faithfulness is something that we can bank our lives on. Okay, the first reason is his intrinsic value. We're looking at Matthew chapter 26. We're starting in verse 6. Matthew 26, starting with verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. 
In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Okay, so here's what's happening. The disciples have been wrestling with the same question that we've been wrestling with. They've been wondering if their salvation rests on their obedience to Jesus, and they've been wrestling with their lack of generosity toward the poor. And then this amazing event happens. They're all in one house together, and this woman, who is Mary Magdalene, she's a prostitute, formerly was a prostitute, She was a great sinner. She's now an apprentice of Jesus. She's a follower of him. And she's anticipating his death. And she takes the most expensive item in her house, which is a flask full of perfume that would have been worth between $30,000 and $50,000. And she takes that perfume out And she pours it on Jesus' head. And so the disciples, led by Judas at this point, are mad. Because they just heard this teaching about giving all that they had to the poor. So they're like, what is she doing? We're supposed to give it to the poor so we can get saved. What is she thinking? Why is she doing this? And Jesus responds in a way that no other leader of a world religion could possibly respond. Because Jesus isn't just the leader of a world religion. He's a savior. And so he says this absolutely shocking statement. He says, the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying that he has more value than the poor. Now, guys, just think how shocking this statement is. Imagine if I said, hey, guys, I know that Kaylee just made this announcement about every meal, but you're always going to have the poor with you but you're not always going to have me. And so instead of giving your time, energy, and money to the poor, I've placed a hat up here, and after this service, you can give your most valuable possessions to me. Just throw your car keys in there, and I'll take care of them. Now, if I said that, it would be ridiculous. But when Jesus says it, it's beautiful. Here's why. Remember what he said was the reason we should give to the poor. Here's the reasoning that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. He says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Here's what he's saying the reason that we should be generous to the poor is. Because in being generous to the poor, we're being generous to Jesus. How is that possible? 
it's only possible if Jesus is the creator of all humanity. See, what Jesus is saying is that the poor are a reflection, a dim reflection of me. The poor are made in the image of God. Jesus is God. So he is saying, I am God and the poor, and by extension, everyone on planet earth is made in my image. But I am the original and they are secondary. I am supreme and they are created. I'm the one who has ultimate value. Their value is derivative and secondary. They reflect my glory the way that the moon reflects the glory of the sun. And so what he's saying is that this woman's act of giving all that she had to Jesus is beautiful for the same reason that giving to the poor is beautiful. Because what's beautiful about giving the poor and what's beautiful about giving everything to Jesus when he was in the flesh is that both are glorious because of Jesus himself. So what Jesus is saying is, I am the one who gives dignity, worth, and value to every single person on earth. And therefore, every person on earth should be treated as if they were me. This is incredibly radical. Imagine that you went to somebody's house and they just had this beautiful house and you were house-sitting for them. And right before they leave, they say to you, make sure that you take extra good care of this painting because it's an original Monet. How much care would you show to that painting? If I was with my kids, I'd immediately move them to another location <laughs> because I would be terrified. If you had your dog with you, the dog would no longer be with you. <laughs> if you spilled your soup on a regular basis, you wouldn't eat anywhere near that painting. Why? Because you understand that that painting has value because of who painted it. And so you would show special care not to damage the painting at all. Jesus is saying, I am the painter of every person on planet Earth. I'm the original, and they get their value because they're my creation. Guys, this has incredible implications for the moment that we live in right now. Because here's what's happening. You've got one group of people saying that those human beings who are still in their mother's womb have value and should be protected. 
And you have another group of people that are saying, those who are not being treated justly in our society should be treated justly as if they have value and are worthy. Everyone should be treated equally and be given an equal opportunity. And what begins to happen is both groups are engaging in saying, but what about the other group? But what about the other group? But what about the other group? And so everybody's talking past each other for all sorts of different reasons, mainly political reasons. And here's what we can do as Christians. We can stop talking about what, and we can start talking about why. Here's our contribution to the discussion. All people should be treated with dignity, worth, and value as if they are the most precious person on earth. Whether they are in the womb or they are old and frail, no person should be treated with injustice. And this is because every person was created for Jesus and was created by Jesus. Every person on this planet gets their worth from King Jesus. And in so doing, I think that people will begin to lean in because there's so much shouting going on between groups, which is ironic in a sense, because everyone's shouting at each other, saying that these groups of people have value, but in shouting, we're treating the person that we're talking to as if they don't have value. And Jesus brings to our attention that every person has value because he has value, and he is the creator of all. Okay, so that's the first reason that we can trust that Jesus is faithful. He has this intrinsic value. The second reason we see in the text is his unilateral promise. Okay, when we talk about promises, we usually think more contractually than we think unilateral. Here's what I mean. When we make a promise, what we really mean is, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. Jesus doesn't promise like that. He promises in a completely different way. Matthew 26, 26 through 29, pretty familiar passage here. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, so this moment for the disciples would have felt very familiar. So they go into this place called the upper room. They are, in their minds, doing something that they've done every year since they were small children. They're commemorating the Passover. So the Passover had been celebrated by the Jews 
for about four or 5,000 years at this point. And in the Passover, the Jewish people were commemorating God's rescue of the people of Israel from slavery under the oppression of Egypt. So you might remember this story from the Old Testament where Moses goes to the Pharaoh, sort of the king, the leader of Egypt, and he tells him to let his people go. And Pharaoh continually says no, and there's 10 different plagues. And the first nine, Pharaoh does not listen to Moses, or he says that he will listen, and then he ends up not listening. And there's crazy things that happen, like the Nile River turns to blood, there's frogs everywhere, there's locusts everywhere, and he still doesn't listen. And he only listens when God tells the people of Israel that he's going to go through their entire land and he is going to kill every firstborn son in the land. That is, with the exception of those Israelites who will, by faith, take the blood of a lamb and will smear that blood of the lamb over their doorframe. And if the blood of the lamb is over the doorframe, then God will pass over that house. And so the way that Jews have commemorated that festival and actually still do commemorate that festival down to our day is they would eat the meat of a lamb, they'll drink wine, and they'll eat bread. And this is what the leader of each household will say to start that festival in the house, to remember that they had been rescued from slavery by God Almighty. He would say, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in Egypt. So they would eat bread and they would drink wine. And, but that's the first thing that he would say. This is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in Egypt. And so the disciples are expecting that that's what Jesus is going to say. But instead of saying that, Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he says, for this is my blood of the covenant. So you can start to feel the shock that his disciples would have. Their hearts would start beating hard. They might be tempted to say, hey, Jesus, you're getting the words wrong or you're scaring us. What are you talking about? Why are you telling us to eat your body and drink your blood? This is creepy. What Jesus is doing is he is instituting a new covenant. So under the old covenant, the people of God were rescued from physical slavery by the blood of a lamb. 
in the new covenant, the people of God are rescued from spiritual slavery by the blood of the Son of God. Jesus is saying, I promise you that my blood is going to rescue you from the wrath of God, from the punishment that is due for your sins. But this is what I want you to notice about his promise. It is 100% unconditional. He doesn't tell the disciples that they have to do anything except to believe it by taking the elements and eating them and drinking them. And in that way saying, we won't call you a liar, Jesus. We believe you when you say that you will accomplish this. We don't exactly know how, but we trust you. We believe in you. But think about the imagery that Jesus is using. We're so familiar with the imagery of the cross that it's lost the visceral feeling that we should have of disgust. He's saying, this is my body broken for you. He's saying, my body is going to be broken. My body is going to be torn to shreds. He's saying, this is my blood My blood is going to be poured out. I'm going to be lashed. My hands are going to be pierced. My feet are going to be pierced. There's going to be a spear going into my side. I promise you that I am going to die for you. This is what Jesus is doing in this passage. He is vowing to us. Okay, here's some good traditional wedding vows. For richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, until death do us part. Now, couples vow that in hope that they'll never have to live that out. The hope for every married couple as they stand on the stage is that it will be better, not worse. That there will be health, not sickness. And they don't know, but they're saying, in the event that things go south, I'm going to stick with you. Here's what Jesus is saying. For poor, in sickness, for worse, Until it kills me. And then with his bride standing right there. Waiting for him to tell her what her vows will be. He makes us say nothing. He's saying I am vowing that I will die for you no matter what you do. No strings attached. Jesus' covenant is completely based on his faithfulness, not yours. Thank God.
Because if it's about our faithfulness at all, if we're honest with ourselves, not one of us will be saved. So Jesus makes a promise, and then he shows, finally, his unwavering commitment. He doesn't just promise. He follows through. We see the beginnings of this in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So here's what you have in this passage. You have this contrast between Jesus and his disciples. His disciples are like us, unfaithful. At the hour of deepest need, they're taking a nap. And Jesus is resolutely committed to the purpose of, for which he came to earth. But the question in this particular passage is, what's going on with Jesus? Does he have a bad day? Is he depressed? Has he not been getting enough sleep? Because this whole gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been tough as nails. He's been bold. He's been committed. He's been preaching these radical sermons. He's been standing up to religious leaders. He's been healing the poor and the sick and the marginalized. And all of a sudden, we find him sorrowful, deeply troubled, distressed. In another passage, it said his sweat was like drops of blood. He is in agony to the depths of his soul. Is he scared to die? Does he know that the cross is coming and he's looking toward the physical suffering of the cross and he just can't take it, which would make him less tough than a lot of martyrs in the history of the church because we have lots of records of martyrs in the history of the church who face death triumphantly. And we find our answer to that question in Jesus' prayer to the Father. He comes to him and he says, let this cup pass from me. 
that phrase, this cup, is rich with Old Testament imagery. Let me give you a couple examples. Isaiah 51, verse 17 says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Then again in Jeremiah 25, verse 15, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The cup that Jesus is looking into is not the cup of physical suffering. It is the cup of invisible, divine suffering at the hands of his father. So here's a question people often ask. Why is the Old Testament filled with blood and guts and an angry God? Why is there so much wrath in the Old Testament and so little wrath in the New Testament? And the Christian answer to that question is, oh, There's way more wrath in the New Testament. It's just all focused on Jesus. He gets it all. Jesus, because of his commitment and faithfulness toward us, because of his promise that his body would be broken for us and his blood would be spilled for us, looks into the cup and he starts staggering. His knees start shaking. His soul is deeply troubled. He is in anguish because he has had an eternal relationship with his father. We believe that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those three persons have existed in perfect community, like a dance, for all eternity. The Father and the Son had never been separated for one moment before this moment. And Jesus is looking at not only being separated from his Father, but his Father turning against him with all of the wrath that all of the sin and injustice that has ever been happened in the history of the world and would ever happen from that moment on will be poured on to him. Now we can begin to imagine this. Think about the most long-standing relationship that you have. Think about the person that you're closest to. Now, the closer you are and the longer the relationship is, the more painful it would be if you were separated from that person, either through death or through relational conflict. But now imagine that it's not just death. It's not just relational conflict. It's not only, not, not even just divorce. It's that that person 
turned against you to try to kill you. Think how distressing that would be. The most distressing part would not be anticipating the physical suffering of what it feel like for them to kill you. What would be distressing is that for the first time, the relationship would be profoundly broken. That's what Jesus is experiencing. Eternal relationship, eternal closeness. The Father turns on him. Doesn't just turn away from him, but turns on him so that what we're anticipating at the cross is, yes, there's a human element to him, it the Roman soldiers killed him yes there's a betrayal element to it the Jewish leaders turned him over but what is most horrible about the cross is the divine transaction that the father turned against his son why because Jesus took your place That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. In this passage, we've stuck to the faithfulness of God. We've stuck to the faithfulness of Jesus. But if you literally read between the lines, you'll see Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You'll see Peter denying Jesus in front of a teenage girl. And you see all the disciples running away from Jesus in unfaithfulness to him. And you see Jesus standing in their place, taking the punishment for them. You see, the Bible says, you and I killed the author of life. But it also says that he willingly gave up his life for us. And so here's the question. Will you respond to the faithfulness of Jesus and your faithlessness like Peter or like Judas. Here's what Judas did. He killed himself. I can't stand my unfaithfulness. I'm unworthy to be saved. There is no way that Jesus could forgive me for what I've done. See, he had a me-centered religion. I can't forgive myself, so the only way out is for me to take the punishment for my own sin. And here's what Peter did. He came home to Jesus. He ran back to him. Even though he had been unfaithful, he believed that Jesus would receive him because his relationship with Jesus was never based on his obedience, but on the obedience and faithfulness of Jesus. 
And because of this belief, Peter was able to come back to Jesus, was be able, able to be restored to Jesus, and was used as an instrument in Jesus' hands to the point where he was able to write this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See guys, it's by his wounds that we're healed. Look with me away from yourself, away from your lack of commitment, away from your pathetic repentance, away from your inability to live up to what God asks of you and look to the faithfulness of Jesus. See that he pays for your sin and gives you his perfection. And as a result of that, be changed. Go and sin no more. Come back to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at this passage, it is evident that this is the word of God. Because there is no way a human being could make up this religion. We understand the religion of try as hard as you can and if you do well enough, then you'll be accepted. But this idea of grace and your faithfulness, it is like a foreign concept that is the most beautiful epiphany in the entire world. Jesus, thank you that salvation rests on your faithfulness to us not on our faithfulness to you. How beautiful. How magnificent. We come running to you because there is nowhere else we can go. In Jesus' name, amen.